0: Hello and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India by Janardhan Ganari and Peter Adamson. Brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich. Online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode will be an interview about epistemology in the Nyaya School of Indian Philosophy with V. N. Jha and Ujwala Jha, who are both former directors of the Center of Advanced Study in Sanskrit at the University of Pune, where Professor Ujwalaja is still professor of Sanskrit. Thank you very much for coming on, both of you.
1: Thank you so much.
0: I thought I'd start by just getting you to give our listeners a quick reminder about the Nyaya school, what the main characteristics of the school are, and who the main figures are, especially in the earlier period of Niyaya.
1: Yeah. I think uh, what you need to understand is that... Nyaya school is one of the six orthodox schools of Indian philosophy. The Sanskrit term for orthodox school is Astika. As against Nastika, the term for philosophy in Sanskrit is Darshana. You have to be a little careful in understanding Indian philosophy by focusing on the term Darshana. Darshana comes from the root drish to see. It implies that uh, we should visualize, we should see, we should discover, we should realize certain thing, the reality through philosophy. It is in this sense we have to understand the term darshana. And Nyaya system is one of such uh, systems of philosophy and Gautama, the systematizer of the Nyaya philosophy wrote Nyaya Sutra and uh, then we have a history of thousand years of dialogue through commentaries. So Nyaya Sutra commented upon by Vatsyayana which was commented upon by Udyotakara which was commented upon by Vachaspati Mishra, which was commented upon by uh, Udayana Acharya, by 10th century AD. We read, these commentaries are form of a dialogue, I have said, because there must be some reason to write a commentary again. In the exercise, there has been dialogue. So it's a deep kind of a dialogue, philosophical dialogue. So when Gautama puts some thesis, some theory, some... Uh, Uh, point of view for consideration, it may not be acceptable to one and all. So, questions were being raised and in order to answer and to respond to those questions, commentaries used to be written. It is in this way we have a history, recorded history, fortunately, of 1,000 years of intense philosophical dialogue. And uh, in the course of time what happened, uh, they developed certain tools as well, because the idea was to communicate. One such tool was the epistemology. Another was logic. The other was a universal model of inquiry. So these are the things which happened all through these thousand years and through that very deep epistemological results were at hand.
0: As we've been looking at Nyaya, we emphasize very much what you just mentioned, their contributions in epistemology and logic, but their seeking ultimate happiness fits into the project of the Vedic schools more generally. So we might think, for example, of Vedanta or uh, of yoga. What is the relationship then between the Nyaya project of epistemology and logic and this search for ultimate happiness?
1: Right. Uh, philosophizing should also have some purpose. Uh, It's not that philosophizing for philosophizing's sake. So Indian tradition of philosophy did not believe that philosophy should be simply a mental exercise. Thought was required to be put into practice and that was the reason that philosophy has to address human purpose.
0: So is the idea then that I have beliefs about the right way to live and then the thing that they're really interested in is whether that kind of belief counts as knowledge?
1: It is in this context you have to look into the first sutra of Gautama. He gives a kind of a roadmap map of, of a man to arrive at the reality and identify who he is. And this has a context of the Vedic period, the earlier period, Upanishadic period particularly, where intensely this question is being asked, Who I am? And that is why in the first sutra itself, Gautama puts this and says that by the true cognition of 16 entities that he has listed, Pramana, Prameya, I hope uh, by now you are familiar with these terms. Uh, Pramana is the process of knowing. So, how we acquire knowledge, process. And the system has accepted there are four processes of knowing. Prameya is that what we knowable. But uh, one should be very careful. This prameya here, and the Vaishesikas also started to understand the entire universe through language. So, when their prameya is the whole universe, and the term for universe, the vaisheshikas introduced is Padārtha, that is the referent of language. So, whatever language refers to is universe. And here, however, Gautama also uses the term Padārtha. He says, by knowledge of the sixteen Padārthas, Uh, one is going to acquire the ultimate goal of human life. But these Padarthas are the entities which are required for engaging yourself in arguments in order to understand who you are. So if I am to discover myself, I will have to identify myself. And I am one entity in the whole universe. So me and non-me. Myself and what I am not. Unless I know what I am not, how I, am I able to identify what I am? And therefore, I must address my inquiry into the entire universe. And it is in this context, he says that, well, this is why the vaisheshikas are interested in knowing the whole universe. There also the term padartha has been used. So that padartha term is categorical. That addresses exactly the reference of the language that is the whole universe is meant by Padartha. Here however, Gautama has chosen few Padarthas, few entities which are helpful for him to identify the self as distinct from all that is not self. And um, to to now link you uh, this inquiry and his answer is in the sutra 112 now 112 gives you the entire causal relationship that why we are in a conditioned state we human beings are conditioned state and therefore we are suffering now why uh, what is the meaning of conditioned state conditioned state precisely means that we have taken x to be y the reality is if reality is x we know it to be y so this is what he calls mithya jnana, eh? a wrong conception, a, a uh, not knowing X as X, Y as Y, but we have taken to be true X as Y. And it is because of this mithya jnana, this misconception, the immediate, really what emerges in us is an attitude. That attitude prompts my behavior. My behavior then produces... Sometimes good result, sometimes bad result. But they go on accumulating in me and ultimately they become responsible for my coming again and again, going back. So the cycle of birth and rebirth is produced ultimately by Mithya And if, if this is my state of conditioned state in which I am, and because of this I am suffering. If I have to go out of suffering, I should go out of, ultimately, permanently out of the cycle of birth and rebirth. And for that, since I have been able to diagnose the root cause of my suffering, which is namely the mithya now it can be cured, it can be removed only by yathartha jnana. Tatva Tat is X. So knowing X as X, and it is that reason that if I have tattva jnana or the correct cognition or right knowledge, then my mithya jnana, my conception, misconception will go out and that which produce an attitude that will also be corrected. Then my behavior will be corrected, my actions will be corrected and naturally that is not going to leave residue which will be responsible for bringing me to suffer in the cycle of birth and rebirth. Okay, so that tells us what knowledge
0: has to do with the wider aims of nyaya um, already in Gautama, as you've been saying. And I guess that's something that we associate with other schools, uh, both Vedic and non. So, for example, the Buddhists also would say that knowledge is, in a way, the route to freedom from suffering. Let's now turn to your wife, Jwada um, who is going to tell us something about the other aspect of um, early nyaya, And this is not so much epistemology, but logic. Now, obviously, if you're interested in knowledge, then you might be interested in things like truth conditions or arguments. And this is certainly something that we already see in Gautama. In early Nyaya, one of the developments that you get is a focus on the form of arguments, and they develop a theory of the syllogism, which may seem a little bit simplistic or ad hoc, uh, but perhaps you can tell us about this theory and what there is to say in favor of it.
2: I think that uh, one should not take the syllogism which we find in the early Nyaya, as you said, as ad hoc. Um, Because uh, the Sutrakara has defined the syllogism. And there he gives, there are five members to this syllogism. These five members are very well defined by him and then explained by the Bhashyakara. Had it been ad hoc, I mean, it would have been... uh, Uh, abandoned afterwards because uh, if it had some purpose uh, particular purpose to serve and then when the purpose was over this would have been abandoned but uh, as we find that the same five-member syllogism is defended, is justified throughout the Nyaya tradition and also up to uh, the Nyaya Siddhanta Muktavali of Vishwanatha you will find that he also is justifying and defending the five-member syllogism he belongs to the 17th century AD, and also Annam Bhatta in his Tarkasangraha defends this five member syllogism. So, Nyaya tradition is throughout justifying the five member syllogism, and Bhashyakara, even when he explained the five members, he took into account another view of another section of Nyayakas who believed that ten members would have been correct. So there could have been 10 members of the syllogism and Vatsyayana has denied that uh, possibility and he says that only 5 members are there. So just to bring us to the uh, stock example that uh, the tradition gives of the syllogism, uh, that is Parvataha Vanniman, so the mountain has fire, Dhumat, because it has smoke. Wherever there is smoke, so yatra yatra dhumaha, tatra tatra vannihi, yatha Mahanasaha. this is the third member. Wherever there is smoke, there is fire, just as in the kitchen. Then the fourth is, tatha ayam, the same is this mountain. That means, the same smoke, which is uh, invariably related with fire, is seen on this mountain. And the Tasmat tatha, therefore, that is from the basis from the dhuma from the smoke we conclude that this mountain must have fire. So this is the stock example that uh, we find in the tradition because uh, dhuma and vanni that is smoke and fire they have this invariable relationship. So when one knows the invariable relationship between X and Y and when one sees X then he invariably remembers Y. This is the point And this has been, I mean, justified and defended throughout the Nyaya tradition. Not that it was not at all objected to. We can find that uh, Mimamsakas are always asking the question, why uh, should you have five members of syllogism? Three are enough, because they say that the two seem to be repeated. But uh, this is not accepted by the Nyaya tradition. They have very much uh, refuted the stand of Mimamsa, And we can uh, find that even the Sutrakara, who defined the five members for the first time in the history of Nyaya? even he is aware of the, uh, the element of repetition.
0: What exactly is the repetition? I mean, which two steps are repeated?
2: Uh, the first uh, member is parvataha vanniman, so there is fire on the mountain. And the conclusion is, therefore there is fire on the mountain.
0: So it's like the first step is I say what I'm trying to prove, and the last step is I conclude from the syllogism that what I wanted to prove is true.
2: Exactly, it is like that. But those who want to say that uh, this seems to be a repetition, I mean, they had some idea that this repetition, but uh, this uh, element of repetition is noted by the Sutrakara. So while defining the uh, conclusion, for the conclusion we have a term Nigamana. For defining conclusion, the Sutrakara says that this is the Punarvachana. This is the restatement of the proposition. The first one is, uh, there is fire on the hill. It is called Proposition, Pratidnya in Sanskrit. Then, because there is smoke, this second step, Dhumat, this is known as Hetu in Sanskrit, which means probands in the... Uh, you can translate it into English as probands.
0: So the thing that proves something. Yeah,
2: so that is the basis of proving the uh, the object that you want to prove. Then the third one is, uh, you have to say that there is a there is an invariable relationship between the two objects. That is the thing that you want to prove and the basis on which you want to prove it. So these two are uh, then mentioned in the third step, which which is known as example and which is also a statement of invariable relationship. So both these are together. So wherever there is smoke, there is fire. This is the statement of invariable relationship. And as in the kitchen, this is the example of the same relationship.
0: So in other words, I've seen in my kitchen that whenever there's fire there's smoke or whenever there's smoke there's fire so i can infer that that's generally true
2: yes very much correct but it is the other way around it is wherever there is smoke there is fire because the other way is not correct because there could be fire and there there can be an absence of smoke but the other way around is not correct i mean wherever there is smoke there has to be fire so this is i mean the smoke is the basis for inferring fire and not fire is never the basis for inferring smoke.
0: Because I guess the idea would be if you lit a candle, you'd have fire but no smoke.
2: Yes, and there are so many traditional examples in the, in the Nyaya tradition. They say that hot iron ball, it has fire, but it doesn't have smoke. So the area that, uh, that is covered by fire is quite bigger than the area which is covered by smoke. And therefore there is terminology of pervader and pervaded. So what is pervaded can be the basis of inferring the pervader, but not the other way around.
0: How general is this uh, idea of the syllogism supposed to be? Are they thinking that you can use this pattern of argument to basically prove any kind of questionable conclusion? So you can start with anything where you're trying to prove that it's true. You can use this five-step syllogism and prove that thing.
2: Exactly, exactly this is the case. Because this is uh, why it is uh, there, because uh, as uh, Prof. Jha mentioned, that uh, the Nyaya is uh, more or less trying to develop the uh, methodology of dialectics. So in the dialectics, you will certainly require to prove your own point. And for that, you can use this uh, method of inference. This is what we call Anumana Prayoga. So these five steps that we call Anumana Prayoga, the form of inference, So, this is the form of inference which you can use. So, we were uh, talking about the five members and the fourth one is uh, it is said to be confirmatory cognition. That the same type of smoke, so after you have the example, you remember the invariable relation, you confirm that the same type of smoke is there on the mountain. Same type of smoke, we we mean the smoke which is invariably with fire. And that is how it leads to the conclusion, the last step, that therefore, there must be fire on this mountain. So, this is how the conclusion comes. and uh,
1: To add, uh, it is necessary to have all the five. Anything less than this is not going to complete the process. So, all the five sentences should make one sentence, and that is called Mahavakya.
0: One thing that strikes me about this whole procedure is that, as you've just said, the situation that you're analyzing for this proof needs to be described linguistically. And yet one of the pramanas, the sources of knowledge that Nyaya recognize, is perception. And there's a debate within Nyaya and other schools about how those two things join together. So if I have a perception of, let's say, smoke, then it seems very important for the syllogism to go through that you've just described, that... I actually understand that this thing I'm seeing is smoke. And I also understand that there's this invariable relationship between smoke and fire. What I'm wondering then is whether they want to say that that always comes for free with perception, so to speak. In other words, when I see something, it's not like I just see a black blur or something like that. But I'm already seeing it as smoke. Is that the idea? Or is the idea that perception gives me some kind of raw Data that I then have to interpret using a concept like smoke.
1: I don't think. I think you are taking me to another aspect. I should tell you that uh, the Nyaya is utter realist, a system of utter realism. By this, I mean that that is real, which is knowable and nameable. And when I say it is knowable, there is a causal relationship between that which I know. And the knowledge that emerges after that process of knowing. And a cause must precede the effect. And therefore, the world which I which I am going to know has to precede the knowledge of the world. And because of this, so this is a karana, and jnana is a karya. So a perception is a karya, is an effect, and perception of X. Then X has to precede perception of X and therefore it has to be independent of my mind. and therefore the entire world is independent of not of, of, of mine. And it is this reason this is one aspect, another aspect that uh, there is a uh, tradition of debate that the idealist held a position that reality cannot be captured through language. This is started at the Upanishadic period itself got concretized, formulated uh, with the Buddhist logicians and when it was taken for debate Niyaya all along put this position took the position that language also can refer to reality and on these two issues Udayanacharya of Mithila of 10th century wrote two texts one is called Atma Tattva Viveka this is to establish Self and the other one, Nyaya Kusmanjali, to establish God. So be it a Parmanu, a subtle, which our eyes, normal, gross eyes cannot perceive, or God, anything that exists is knowable and nameable. And it is by these two criteria alone, the reality claim is made by the Nyaya school.
0: So it's a very optimistic epistemology, Um, and of course that means that they're under an obligation to respond to skeptical attack, and the skeptical attack duly comes, especially from the Buddhists. And there's a lot of things one could raise here, and we're gonna get into Buddhist skepticism later on in the series, Uh, but I wanted to ask about one particular kind of skeptical attack so you can tell us what the Nyaya School says in response to it. And this is basically a kind of regress argument. The idea being that whatever pramana, whatever source of knowledge I take, I have to somehow give a further reason for the reliability or accuracy of that pramana. For example, if I say, well, my perceptions count as knowledge, then I have to have some other reason other than perception, which guarantees the accuracy or truth or reliability of perception well, that will be some other pramana maybe, but then I can just keep playing this game all day and there's a regress. So how do the Niyaya respond to this kind of uh, demand for a regress of justification?
2: Actually, this uh, attack or this accusation that uh, pramana, that is the source of knowledge, if it is already known, then only it operates towards its object. Uh, This premise itself is uh, faulty or defective, can I say? So that the accusation does not stand at all. Because Nyaya accepts that uh, there are two types of sources of knowledge. A type of source of knowledge is known first and then it operates towards its object. But there is also another type of uh, source of knowledge which even not known operates towards its object. So in Sanskrit we say Nyatam Sat Pramanam Bhavati. Something is a source of knowledge when it is already known. It itself is known and adhnyatam sat bhavati. So something is a source of knowledge which is not itself known. If, uh, if this is what you mean, I mean, then uh, the very basic pramana, they accept is pratyaksha pramana. That is the perceptual uh, way of knowing things. So there the uh, pramana, pramana is nothing but the sense organ. Pramana is the source of knowledge. What is the source of knowledge in perception? It is nothing but sense organ. And for perceptual cognition, one need not know his own sense organ. So eyes see colour or the knower sees through eyes a colour of a thing, then he need not know uh, eyes first. So that is not at all required. But there are the other means of knowing, namely Anumana, Upamana and Shabda which are accepted in the system of Nyaya, they are, uh, as we discussed some time before the process of anumana, there we saw that unless we know the invariable relationship between X and Y, we are not in a position to to infer Y on the basis of X. So, we saw that uh, in the kitchen or in so many places we have seen that smoke and fire are together. So, but what is this? This is perception. So, perception is the basis of all Pramanas. So, in other words, I mean, the, uh, in the other cases, that is, Anumana, Upamana and Shabda, that is, uh, analogy and verbal cognition, in all these cases, you must have some knowledge. Uh, that is, knowledge of the source. It is very much required. So, Upamana, that is, analogy, is also accepted to be an independent means of knowing. Analogy is uh, nothing but resemblance similarity. So, unless you know the similarity between again X and Y, you will not know one on the basis of the other. Similarly, in verbal cognition, unless you know the language, you are not in a position to understand what the speaker is saying. So, uh, for that also they say that uh, the relationship between the word and its meaning must be known prior to the communication with the speaker and hearer. So, whatever the language the speaker is using uh, must be known by the hearer this is the requirement for shabda pramana that is for the verbal understanding but one cannot accept the 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 accusation because for pratyaksha pramana we do not need that the source of knowledge must be known prior to the operation
0: that's really interesting so in contemporary analytic epistemology there's this distinction between externalist theories of justification and internalist theories of justification and one way of putting the difference is that externalists don't think that the knower has to have access to the fact that what they believe is really knowledge. So they don't have to know that they know, it's enough for them to know. Whereas internalists think that you do have to know that you know in order to count as knowing. So, to use this example of perception, an externalist would say, well, as long as your eyesight is working properly and as long as the lighting conditions are good and so on, then perception is a means of knowledge. Can you be absolutely sure that your vision is working and so on? Maybe not, but it doesn't matter because it is working properly. Whereas an internalist would say, no, no, you actually have to somehow be sure like the, The objection, the regress objection says, you have to have some further way of being sure that your perception is working. So what's interesting about what you just said, I think, is that they, it sounds like they have an externalist theory of perception, but an internalist theory of other sources of knowledge. So for example, linguistic knowledge, you are able to know that your linguistic knowledge is accurate, even though they don't make that demand for perception. Is that right?
2: Yes, very correct.
0: One other thing I would like to ask uh, before talking about the later development, uh, historical development of Nyaya, is about its relationship to the other Vedic schools. It's famously associated with Vaisheshika, and you've already said something about that. But what about a school like the yoga tradition, which seems to be much more oriented towards practice and maybe a more kind of ethical or practical dimension of um, Indian philosophy, Is there any way to bring together yoga and these sometimes very technical issues in logic and epistemology that we associate with Nyaya? Yoga
1: also is a plan of a journey, inner journey I call it, from a conditioned state of man to deconditioned state of himself. Again, I recall Jayanta Bhatta, a Kashmiri logician. He's a very fascinating man. He says that, well, up to this, you can go with this thought. But unless thought is put into action, transformation is not going to be that easy. And therefore, all the methods which were developed by yoga, by Patanjali, in the Yoga, yoga Sutra, need to be practiced by even the Because ultimately, it, it is a system for transformation. So, external transformation will not going to help you. You have to help, you have to transform inside. And this roadmap, which was prepared by Patanjali, should be made available to one and all systems. And the Nayaikas have very happily accepted. It is in this way, particularly, uh, Nyaya is related to yoga, yoga philosophy.
0: I think that's really fascinating because uh, it shows that in Indian philosophy and I guess it's true of for example ancient Greek philosophy as well you you have in the same thinkers and certainly in the same traditions this kind of combination of highly technical philosophy and also a kind of ethical or shaping of the self tradition and uh, one question that arises I think here is how technical it actually gets because we've been talking about for example the syllogism but you gave uh, sort of everyday example about smoke and fire to what extent could we actually say that they develop something on the order of formal logic the way that we sometimes see formal um, methods of logic being used in contemporary philosophy sometimes brought into contact with epistemology is this something that we see in the development of nyaya as well uh
2: maybe that uh, you may not be able to say that the way formal logic is done the contemporary philosophy you may not find the similar type of uh, formal logic in nyaya but uh, nyaya from through all, through centuries i mean as they as we saw that the, from the very beginning they have been talking about dialectics and the dialectics was not uh, getting successful because of some problems in the um, ordinary language because whenever we speak in ordinary language there is uh, a room for ambiguity And that is how, I mean, whatever the Bhashyakara said was not properly understood by the Buddhist logicians. And they raised questions. (coughs) Then further, those questions were answered by, suppose, Udyotakara. But then what Udyotakara had in mind was not again understood properly by the Buddhist logicians. And uh, as it is mentioned that the dialogue of uh, 1000 years was on and there is a record of this dialogue, we can go through the literature and we can understand that how one term is taken to mean something else by the other, and that is how actually the the point of time came when they thought that the language of communication must be uh, rectified, must be evolved in different way so that we can have some uh, inambiguous or unambiguous or non ambiguous communication, and that is how we find that uh, after the time of Prashastapada, Prashastapada belongs to 6th century AD, Prashastapada wrote a commentary on the Vaisheshika Sutras. So Vaisheshika Sutras are uh, very old, maybe um, that same time with Nyaya Sutras, maybe some somewhere uh, 100 BC or something like that. But from that uh, up to the Prashastapada Bhashya time, we do not have much literature in Vaisheshika. But the uh, Prashastapada Bhashya mentions Ishvara. So Ishvara, which was accepted by Nyaya's, Nyaya tradition, is now accepted by the Vaisheshikas, and so you can see that uh, slowly the two are started. Uh, sta- the two have started merging into each other. And Udayanacharya he wrote a commentary on the Prashastapadabhashya. In his commentary, we find the traces of the evolution of new language. He wants that the same terminology should not be used, so that the uh, confusion arises. And that is how he started using some particular terminology to give the specific meaning, to give the precise meaning that if you want to say X, the hearer will understand only X and nothing else. That was the terminology he slowly started developing and uh, it was further developed by Gangesha in the 13th century AD. And uh, we go from uh, Udayana to Gangesha uh, through the contributions of Shashadhara. Shashadhara wrote one Nyaya Siddhanta Deepa and uh, one who knows, I mean who studies Nyaya Darshana, he knows that Shashadhara was little compact and Gangesha developed all his ideas to the fullest uh, of extent and that is how Gangesha's work which is um, Tattva Chintamani. it is, uh, it belongs to 13th century AD, that became the magnum opus navyanaya so there you find that the things are formalized formalized in the sense all ambiguity has been tried to be removed so the to make the communication precise this was this method was adopted by the navyanaya language and whatever emerged is now known as navyanaya language so that language is further i mean uh, accepted by all the other schools of Indian philosophy. So, after 13th century, whosoever is doing Vedanta, he will adopt Navya language. Whosoever is doing um, other, mimasa, he will adopt Navya language. Whosoever is doing even grammar or even poetics, they will adopt Navya language. I mean, they adopted Navya language and that is how they could uh, succeed in their uh, precise communications. Navya Nyaya means new Nyaya, new logic. So, but... But here you have to understand it as the proper name of the language. It is Navya Nyaya language. Yes.
0: Okay. So that takes us up to the 13th century or so. Can we say that Nyaya is a tradition that carried on through early modernity and even maybe down to the present day, I mean, through the coming of Islam in India and so on? Is it, uh, so to speak, a living tradition? I mean, we, we earlier um, we had the mention of the five-step syllogism still being accepted in the 17th century, which is giving Aristotle a run for his money. So be, can we basically just say that Nyaya has always been there ever since its invention in Indian intellectual history?
1: I think so. I think Nyaya, you have to see up to 10th century, one, let us say one phase of development. And then whatever happens after 10th century is another phase. That is what is a new form of Nyaya called Navya Nyaya. Mainly because by the time of Udayanacharya, as I told you, 10th century A.D., he could have an overlook that why the same questions are emerging again and again. And then he identified that the problem lies in the medium of communication. And so language became very important for him. So so as you have in the West, a linguistic turn, which is a very late phenomenon, after Chomsky. So, we have in the Indian tradition in the 10th century Udanacharya pointing out, coming and pointing out that language is that important. Because otherwise, how can we communicate? And unless we communicate, unless we understand each other, other either we accept or reject. Because rejection and acceptance requires understanding. And that is obstructed by So, more natural language you are using for communication, perhaps, you are opening the gate for ambiguity, and therefore there is necessity to develop a new language of discourse, and that language slowly developed as Navya Nyaya language, new Nyaya language. And not only the Nyaya tradition or Vaisheshika tradition by the time Vaisheshika Nyaya became one, because they all agreed with the metaphysics, same metaphysics, so there was no problem. Other systems, Mimamsa, Yoga, Sankhya, Dharma Shastra, Vedanta, Vedanta of eight varieties of Vedanta, you know, so all of them started philosophical discourse only through this medium of Navya Nyaya language. And to tell you the truth, that in each and every traditional Sanskrit education institution, even today, the debate takes place only in Navyanyaya language. So, whether he is a Vedantin or belonging to any other system of knowledge, the debate, medium of debate, medium of discourse is Navyanyaya language. Okay, so uh, we're not going to go quite that
0: far in the coming episodes, but we are going to look at the tradition that's often paired with Nyaya, as we've been discussing, namely Vaisheshika. That will be the topic on the next few podcasts. But for now, I'd like to uh, pr- pr- thank Professor Ja. Thank you so much. And Professor Ja.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Who gave us our first opportunity ever to have a married couple interviewed on the podcast? So that was very exciting. And please join me and Janardhan as we start to look at Vaisheshika next time here on The History of Philosophy in India.